Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Bill. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. Well, that, <laughs> or have a professional do the heavy lifting for us. <laughs> yeah, we've been slacking lately. Yeah, so um, all that is to say we do have a special guest on this episode, but I, I want to throw in there really quick that, don't worry, we will go back to doing our old style of episode soon enough where Bill and I stumble through topics we don't personally work or publish in, <laughs> but for now, you're just going to have to put up with the expert. I'm That's so right. sorry, guys. <laughs> so last month, we had Wayne Gall take us out and search for the devil crayfish, and this month, what do we have lined up? We have Mike Service from New York State Parks, Recreation, and Historical Preservation taking us out to go see the Hart's Tongue Fern at Clark Reservation State Park. That's right. And the Hart's Tongue Fern is a very endangered and rare fern. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. So this episode with Mike came out of our relationship with New York State Parks. Regular listeners will know that there have been two episodes in the past that we've done with park employees. Now, these folks aren't park rangers. They're actually uh, researchers and um, field technicians, people that are doing environmental field work as part of New York State Parks. So we did one episode in the past on... Local ecotypes. That's right. And then we also did an earlier one on restoring grassland habitat. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to listen to those previous two ones to appreciate this episode, but I think they were great ones. Go back and listen to them if you haven't already. Yeah, it's like our New York State Parks trilogy. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But there'll probably be more. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. probably. And I do have to say before we get into it that ferns for me, uh, and and I think for you, it's not one of our great specialties. It's always been one I wanted to get into because I think in our area, we only have like a hundred species. So I'm like, that's, you could do that. That would be easy enough to tackle. Yeah. But I never got into it. I mean, I never, I never got into it so deeply that I feel super confident around ferns. And I do have to say that ferns for me, when I started to get into natural history, they were something that didn't entice me in the way that wildflowers did or trees. And uh, there was a a teacher in college that both of us had. We've mentioned him before, Sandy Geffner, but he had a deep and abiding passion and still does for ferns. (laughs) And whenever he would have us out in the field and we stumble on some ferns, there was a lot of eye rolling, sometimes me included, because we knew the next 40 minutes we were going to be sitting in one spot talking about that fern yeah that's, uh, i do love that about sandy you can go to the most beautiful place to go hiking during one of his classes and he'll make it like 15 feet in, in a three hour and 50 minute class yeah. or whatever <laughs> not that that's necessarily a bad no thing, it was but, great it was great i loved it that's a sandy hike yeah. but i do have to say that over the years i've come to realize that ferns they're like the ducky of the plant world what are you talking about? <laughs> what does so, that mean? That's an older reference. Uh, those of you that, like me, in their 40s, uh, if you ever saw Pretty in Pink, Ducky was the best friend that the main character didn't realize was the perfect choice standing there all along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so ferns, they're just there. They're usually not, uh, you know, standing out the way those wildflowers are, the trees are. People walk by them. Oh, those are ferns. But but um, they're the best girl, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, he really just firmed that up for me, that this idea that ferns have so much to offer if you're willing to stop, take a look, and really get to know them. Mm-hmm. They just have that, that awesome life cycle that Mike will go into that's just not typical for most of the plants we find in our northeastern woods. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool stuff. 
All right, now before we get into the episode proper, Steve does have a special announcement. Yeah, so this is a special episode because we have a sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) So a few months ago, Bill and I were approached by Jack from Gum Leaf USA. Uh, This company makes high quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. And I was actually able to meet up with Jack and he gave us a pair of his Royal Zip model to try out for ourselves. Now, I've done a lot of field work, especially in wetlands, and I've had to wear a lot of different rubber boots, but these are easily the most comfortable boots that I've had. Very comfy. Yeah, 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 they're super nice. A lot of nice little bells and whistles. What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the the average rubber boot, it's pretty basic, where Mm -hmm. these have, you know, a nice um, gusseted zipper. It has these clips up at the top that firm it up nicely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're really, really easy to slip on. And even with that zipper there, they're still 100% waterproof. There's nothing to worry about. It's super nice. But overall, it is a pretty simple design. They're uh, handcrafted for comfort and function, but I actually think they look pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, they're 100% waterproof, they're durable, and they're made from 85% natural rubber, so you don't really have to worry about them cracking. They have styles for men, women, and children, uh, and they're great for birding, uh, I think especially botanizing, even. And I can't wait until the summer so I can use them when we're bird banding, because walking through that tall grass at dawn, it's so wet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll be great for keeping things dry, and it also... We'll keep the ticks out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And really, they're going to be good for any outdoor activity. So if you're interested in a high-quality, tall rubber boot, we definitely recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and exploring their products. It's also a great way to support us, and it'll actually help us to do cooler things in the future with the podcast. Yeah, so thank you to Jack for reaching out to us. Yep, and uh, we'll have a link in the episode notes, and also we'll have a clickable logo on our website for you guys to check out too. And a couple weeks ago, I happened to have them in the back of my car, and I was meeting some of my college students out for a field trip. It was about a 40-degree kind of wintry day, and I had one genius show up at the field trip wearing sneakers and no socks. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, made him put on the boots, and uh, by the end of the hike, he did say they were some of the most comfortable boots he'd ever worn. Good. good. (laughs) All right, so with that, folks, we are going to start the episode proper and uh, we hope you enjoy getting to meet Mike Service and the Hearthstone Fern. Well Mike, thank you so much for giving up a Saturday morning to come out here with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy first day of fall. Yeah. Beautiful oh day. yeah, That's you're right. right. <laughs> the autumnal equinox. Yeah. So we are out here on a nice cool fall day finally. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite comfortable out here. And Mike, I think a good way to start is to give the listeners an idea of your background how did you end up standing in these woods with these two goofballs in front of you? Yeah, that's a really good question. There, there could be a long story here. I guess I'll, <laughs> I guess I'll start with, uh, I, I was a bit of a late comer to the game of, of being in the environmental field. I was working at a bank and worked really? like random desk jobs for a while. I started by, I was working at a medical device company actually. And uh, just wasn't really fulfilled, so I started volunteering at the Utica Zoo. I'm from the Utica area. Okay. And really got into conservation from that and decided to go to the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry for conservation biology. And from there, it just kind of naturally progressed into a love of all things plants and uh, like plant ecology and plant propagation. And I just kind of fell into this project with the American Heart Stung Fern um, with a uh, Dr. Uh, Danny Fernando's lab over at SUNY ESF and uh, yeah it became my master's project for when I started doing my master's and then I started working for state parks through that and now I'm still working for state parks four years later so how and that's old, why I'm here. How old were you when you made the switch 
from all your other your previous life to your life in the woods yeah the past life to now uh, i was about 25 26 years old okay oh. so came back as a non-traditional student that was about eight years ago yeah. or so yeah that's that's very similar to my story I, I think i switched over at about 20 and i only just went back to my master's program now in plant physiology so <laughs> yeah yeah i guess the message is it's never too late you know yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. that's awesome yeah Good. all right so it sounds like you kind of had a a dream trajectory of you came out of school and it doesn't sound like you had a hard time finding a job <laughs> no no not really so i i, I was working at esf you know doing teaching assistant thing yeah. and my master's research brought me here um because of obviously we have so many populations of heart's tongue ferns right here and it's just 10 minutes down the road from SUNY ESF so I started working here in the summers as a seasonal and then uh, about a year and a half two years ago they brought me on full-time because um, I guess they like me you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at that time did you have a perception of wow I'm really lucky to because it's just yeah. such a it's a cliche but it's true that it can be very difficult Oh, yeah. To find it, a position. Yeah, it's a super competitive field. Yeah. Um, you know, anything related to the environment, especially around here with the forestry school right next door. There's so so many students coming out every year that are highly qualified. It's a really great school. So there's a lot of competitiveness. So it was nice to just kind of fall into a thing, now, um, especially something I love to do so much. It's a really great job. And you said that you were doing work with the Hearts Tongue Fern with your graduate work? Right. So was yeah. that something that you went into that you were interested in or was it more something that uh, uh an advisor recommended yeah so i kind of i did like the double dip thing where i did my undergrad and my grad work at suny esf and i learned of the project as an undergrad um with dr fernando there and kind of becoming familiar with the project i thought it was really interesting and a reintroduction project i love working in the field but i also like to mix it up do some lab work some greenhouse work some stuff like that i, I get bored doing the same thing over and over again um so it seemed like an ideal fit because it brought me into the lab it brought me into the greenhouse it brought me into the field and i got to do all these interesting things as a result so yeah well, I bet there's a lot of people listening out there that are envious of your position right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, they're probably not envious of my paycheck. But, <laughs> but I do love my job, so that's the most important thing. That yeah. is, that is, for sure. One little anecdote that I'll share is Steve and I in, in college, uh, we went at different times, but we had this, one of the same teachers was Sandy Geffner. We've mentioned him on, on Mike before. And I'll always remember, he has a passion for ferns. Mm. Uh, some people find that passion overwhelming in terms of how much time he'll spend talking about ferns on a, on a given <laughs> hike, right? <laughs> but uh, he, I remember him telling us once that uh, not many people know a lot about ferns. So if you ever want to pick an area where you will be the expert in almost any group that you're in, choose ferns. Because even if you just do a little bit of work in learning about ferns, you're going to know more than about 90% of the people out there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely a good point. You could probably say the same about fungi. Yeah. Uh, you could probably say the same specifically lichens. In, in plants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fungi, lichens. You could probably say that about mosses too. There's very few moss experts. Right. I was lucky enough to have a moss expert on my um, committee for my graduate program, Robin Kimmerer, yeah. who's a pretty fa oh. famous bryologist. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was fantastic. I still don't really know much about mosses aside right. from their life cycle. I mean, she's I, also yeah. one of the go-to authors for mosses, yes. right? Just for yeah. the layperson as well. Yeah. 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 She's yeah. spectacular. Yeah. And I don't want I don't want the listeners to think I'm talking down about these these different areas because I would say when I started out as 
an interpretive naturalist, I would kind of avoid those things mm -hmm. because I had that bias that, oh, these things are boring. And I think most <laughs> of that comes from me not knowing a lot about them, but right. spending time with people who do know about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have just as interesting stories to tell as anything else that's out here. It's just most people don't know about them. They haven't taken the time to learn yeah, about them. It's true. And fern identification can be pretty hard because sometimes it's just the smallest details that differentiate one species from another. Sure. And like in the case of the genus Dryopteris, the wood ferns, they hybridize a lot too. Right. So it's like you're looking at a fern and you're like, I, what am I looking at? Like, <laughs> yeah. What is this? They, yeah. they, they keep you on your toes, you know? You get that yeah. with, with wildflowers too. Try to identify a true. violet, right? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. True. So, yeah. But I would say that for the lay person out there who may be thinking of, you know, I want to learn more about ferns, mm -hmm. you definitely can identify ferns by general groups, yeah. right? Certain things you can look at and you can say, well, I know that's a wood fern, mm -hmm. right? Or I know that's in the spleenwort group or, right. Know, right? Yeah, absolutely. So wood ferns, you'll typically find scales at the bases of the stipes or the bases of the stems. Yeah. And they, they're kind of those like highly segmented or, or fragment, or I don't know what's the, the right term, divided would be the right term. Sure. Um, highly divided kind of ferns that, that, yeah, I mean, we can look at, we've got a wood fern right here in front oh, of us. Oh, look at that, it's right at our feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, tell me if I'm right. So, again, I don't know a ton about ferns. I can ID the Christmas fern and the sensitive fern, but yep. when I look down, I pretend that I know what I'm talking about when, if I have a group out and they say, what kind of fern is this? I'll say, mm -hmm. well, if there's scales on the, the stipe, right? Mm -hmm. Yep and it's divided, the leaves are readily divided, mm -hmm. it's probably a wood fern. Am I making you're, that up or? You're probably correct, okay. yeah. Depending on where you are, like in this park, most ferns that look like this are gonna be wood ferns. So if you were just like, oh, it's a wood fern, you'd right. probably be yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> Even but, by accident, yeah. Yeah, so the, the scales on the bottom of the stipe or at the base of the stipe is usually a good indicator that you're looking at a wood fern, good. for example. Okay, and, all right, it's nice to know that I'm not spreading misinformation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and for this particular fern, there's other features that you can use to identify it that are sometimes very intuitive. So we can see here, so ferns we know produce spores as opposed to seeds like, like flowering plants um, or gymnosperms. Um, so on the underside of the frond, we can see where the spores are produced in a structure called a sorus. And these ones tend to be marginal or on the margins of of the leaflets. Of the leaflets here. Yep. Actually, this one isn't displaying it very well, but they're right on the edges here, and this would be Dryopteris marginalis, or the marginal shield fern, or marginal okay. wood fern. Yep. I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, for the listeners, sometimes the spores, you're going to find them on separate fertile fronds, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's not, so it's, that's an important identification characteristic as yeah. well. They're not always on the actual vegetative front. Okay. Um, they are sometimes on completely separate structures that look totally different than the rest of the fern. Mm -hmm. um, they're, called, they're called fertile fronds or fertile stalks. Right. Yeah. So like the sensitive fern. Sensitive fern does yeah. that, ostrich fern, yeah. cinnamon fern. Yeah, a lot of different ferns do that. Yeah, and I think it's good that we're going over some basics because this is the first episode we've ever done with ferns, right? Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, we've mentioned them briefly. I think we've seen cinnamon fern maybe in Allegheny or something, but right. We haven't really talked about yeah, this is here. good all right so you gave us some background on yourself mm -hmm. could you give us a little background on the site clark reservation where we are yeah so this is a uh, clark reservation state park we're in jamesville new york just uh, southeast of syracuse new york um and this is a really interesting park um it was originally purchased the land around it was purchased by mary clark thompson 
1915, and she was the daughter of a former governor of New York, Myron Clark. And she originally bought the land around Glacier Lake, which is the lake here, um, because she was interested in geology. And geology is a really important aspect of this park. Um, it's all limestone, dolomitic limestone, and has a lot of cliffs and ravines and things like that. And that's really important for our plant communities here because it provides uh, an array of different microclimates. So very cool, shady areas, very sunny ridges. Um, so we have a lot of different plant diversity because of that. Um, but the interesting connection with Mary Clark Thompson is that she had purchased this land and donated it to New York State, it became a state park officially in 1926. And she also built greenhouses that are currently owned by New York State Parks or operated by New York State Parks in Canandaigua, New York called Sonnenberg Gardens, um, which you guys previously filmed a podcast That's right. uh, on local ecotypes at Sonnenberg Gardens. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting connection. That she was keeps her, popping up. Yeah, that was, that was her <laughs> summer home. And this was one of, she loved geology and that's why she purchased the land here. Just so happened to have some very rare and currently endangered species. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... I don't know if we mentioned it in the intro, but the, the fern that we are looking for today, the heart's tongue fern, uh, is a threatened species, right? Or is it endangered now? So federally, it's threatened. Okay. Um, state, it's endangered. Okay, got yeah. it. All right. So has that been recently upgraded? Yeah, so just last year, it was upgraded from state threatened to state endangered. Oh, yeah, because wow. we were looking at the New York Natural Heritage Program website and it needs to be updated then. Yes, they, so they come out with a report uh, every year or so, um, or every, I think five years actually. Okay. Um, so Steve Young, the chief botanist for New York State, comes out with a report, and the last one was October 2017, so about a year ago now, and okay. it was updated on that report. Okay. Um, so yeah, their website's a little behind. On right. that, yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's yeah. in trouble. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, and one thing that I think is important is not to confuse rare with endangered. So some things are inherently rare, but they're not necessarily at risk. Um, so the heart stung fern is rare, but the reason why it's threatened or endangered is more because of habitat loss and loss of population decline over periods of time. Um, so it's not just that it's rare that equates to it being endangered. It more has to do with its losses over time. So can you give people an idea of its current status in terms of where you're going to find it, what are population levels at? Yeah, so so where you're going to find it in New York State is only in two counties. You're going to find it in Onondaga and Madison counties. In New York State, we're currently in Onondaga County. Um, and Madison's? Madison is our neighboring county. So pretty much just in this area in New York State, around Syracuse. Right, within like a 60-mile span uh, along the thruway or so. Okay. Um, so right. it actually exists along the Niagara Scarp. Um, and this is like the Onondaga portion of the Niagara Escarpment that goes all the way through where you guys are. I was say, we got one of those. From. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe it historically was in the Niagara Gorge out that way, or that there's records, sense. there's records of it being there. Hmm. Um, and then it goes up through Canada, through, um, Ontario. And there's several heart sunk fern populations up in Ontario. So That's probably where they're doing them. the best is up there. And then it actually connects with the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, where there's also about 11 or so populations of heart-stung ferns. And we were talking about this before we turned on the mic. As Steve and I were driving up, the information we read said that 90% of heart-stung fern populations are in New York State, but then you corrected that. Yeah, so, so it used to be that within the United States, I should say, because they have significant populations in Canada, okay. but within the United States, um, we used to, New York be able, used to be able to make the claim that we had about 92% of all the hardest tongue fern in the United States. 
But within the last couple of years, they found a population in Michigan that's several thousand strong. Um, so that number is significantly dropped. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but we do have a claim to fame for state parks in New York State in that between Clark Reservation State Park and nearby Chittenango Falls State Park in Madison County, um, we have 94 to 95% of all the heart stung ferns in New York State. Wow. So we have a big responsibility for taking care of them here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So a lesser claim to fame, but still a claim to fame, right. really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. So let's go see it. Yeah. yeah. Let's check it out. It's just over this way. Watch the poison ivy. Yeah. Lots of it around here. Holy cow. There's a lot of it. Uh huh. All right. So yeah, we're here. This is, uh, so recently oh, there's, there's a guy um, on Instagram. He's at New York State Botany and, or New York Botany. And his name's Scott and I've brought him out here before to see these. And he came out recently. I saw him, he posted some photos of this and he referred to, I think he had the best description of this population. He called it the juiciest heart sung fern <laughs> population in New York, which I thought was pretty accurate. Um, so Put this, it on the brochure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is definitely one of the most impressive populations of heart stung ferns that you'll find um, definitely in New York State. You might find other ones in Canada that are more impressive than this. Um, but these plants are larger than any other heart stung ferns that I've ever seen. Um, and you can see they just kind of like, it's almost like a monoculture of them yeah. up there, like this one spot. So let's give people a, a visual. So folks, we're standing... Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of in a hollow, like one side is uh, a steep mm -hmm. incline yeah. mm -hmm. going up, what would you say, 200 feet maybe? Yeah, mossy, rocky mm -hmm. incline. And then mm -hmm. we're standing kind of hip deep in ferns. Yeah, Goldie's wood ferns is what these are. Oh, yep. great. And then it's the very mossy woods here. Mm -hmm. And then up on the slope above us is just these big, this big cluster of heart's tongue ferns. Yeah, so why don't you give people... Because again, I don't know if we went the, over this in the in the intro, but give people, what does the heart's tongue fern look like? Yeah, that's a really great thing. So I love this plant. And one of the reasons why I love it is because it's so unique looking. Um, it almost looks like something you would find in the tropics. Right, yeah. Um, it's got an undivided frond or a simple frond, which means it just looks like a strap almost. Um, it kind of looks leathery. Like you can see they're kind of shiny um, mm -hmm. here and earlier in the season, they'll be like this bright, like winter green color yeah. when they first pop out and they look amazing actually in the about May or June is my favorite time to see them. But this is also spectacular looking at them here, but yeah, they're just these clumps of straps, like almost like green straps coming out of the, the thing. And so the American heart's tongue fern, I should specify, we're talking about the American variety here. Right. Um, the American heart's tongue fern, if you dissect the name, so heart is actually a red deer or a, a term used for a red deer. Some hunters might know that, but it's not commonly known term. Right. And hearts, Steve didn't know. Yeah. No, I didn't know. <laughs> and, and it is spelled differently, right? It's not H-E-A-R-T? Right, right, H-A-R-T. Right. And it's actually like an English term, which is probably why, because there's a European heart's tongue fern that's common in England. This is a, a totally separate subspecies mm -hmm. um, that we have here, genetically different, morphologically different, all that. Um, so the heart tongue is in reference to the shape and the appearance of the frond which looks like a, just a really big deer tongue basically like a really <laughs> long deer tongue yeah yeah it's really cool um so yeah it's a really interesting plant like if you see it you'll definitely know like like that's different right like that's not something you would normally see and you might not even think it's a fern i was just thinking that yeah. like people who who maybe don't know a ton about ferns they would see that and 
not necessarily say, oh, that's a fern. Yeah, yeah. So you look at these these Goldie's wood ferns in front of us, and you see this is clearly a fern. Right. Like you mm-hmm. feel like you're in the Jurassic Triassic era, <laughs> you know, standing in these. They're big old ferns, um, and they ex- you, they look like what you'd expect a fern to look like. Right. But then you look right next to it with that heart stung fern there, and it's like mm, you could almost. I know people have mistaken them for even like some kind of sedges or I, some I, kind of lilies. Right. You I was know? about like, to say with the sedges, I, yeah. I, I think if I looked really quick for the first half second that I was looking up there I'd be like oh that's maybe a bunch of plantain leaved sedge yeah, and then that's what I was thinking. and then I'd maybe if I looked another second or two I'd be like oh wait a second <laughs> although they are wavy similar yeah. to how the plantain leaved sedge is a little wavy like that but you know it's it's different enough to yeah. I don't think you would get confused for too long it doesn't fit the the usual search image for a yeah a fur. Right, yeah. right. And then if you were to go up and inspect it, if you flip the frond over and look at it, I don't know if you want to step yeah, let's over do it. here. Yeah. And so, so we're actually heading out. towards a, a lighter green individual. Uh, do you think that's just a trick of the lighting, or is that actually a lighter green than the other ones on the on the slope there? Um, I think it, it's probably about the same color as the ones on the slope. I think they just look darker because, I don't know, it's just so dramatic. Right, right. Area. You know, okay. like these habitats are all so dramatic. So, yeah, if you were to come up here and then flip over the frond, you'll see. So the scientific name for these is Asplenium scolopendrium uh, variety americanum. And what scolopendrium refers to is actually the appearance of the sori, or where the spores are produced here, um, to that of a centipede. Because scolopendrium is derived from centipede in Greek or Latin. I can't remember which one. Um, But so that's how it gets its name. Is from that, and it's a spleenwort, so hence okay. the asplenium sure. genus. Yeah, yeah, so these are very linear sori then, right? Correct. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. usually in my head when I think of sori, turn them over and you're going to see round. Right. Often, not always. Sometimes round, sometimes kidney bean shaped, yes. some, but mm-hmm. usually don't think of them as being so long and stretched out like these yeah, ones so are. Each of, each of them on the back, you would say, what, is about half to three quarters of an inch long or a little bit shorter yeah especially as you get up near the tip it's about maybe a centimeter centimeter and a half okay or so yeah um so shorter than so yeah it'd be yeah it'd be about maybe half an inch too and i have to take issue with the the uh centipede reference (laughs) i'd say it definitely looks more like a caterpillar (laughs) don't you think (laughs) which one has more legs millipedes or centipedes (laughs) millipedes I, but I don't know. I think millipede more than centipede. Okay. Aren't their legs more exposed than centipedes? The centipedes are usually like under their body, where millipedes can be out a little bit. You have it opposite. Yeah, oh, the other way around. Yeah, yep. see, th- this is why. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. why you're not a taxonomist, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but either way, they're definitely distinctive. Yes. Yeah, would you say so? Quite. Yeah. yeah, quite. And so one way we can tell the difference between the American variety and the European variety mm-hmm. is typically on the European variety these sori where the spores are produced would go from the tip of the frond and all the way down even to the to the base here okay. where an american heart's tongue fern we rarely find them going more than halfway or three quarters oh, of the good. way down so it's yeah. a, a good morphological feature you might see on a younger european one where they'll go maybe three quarters of the way down okay um but that's it's a good distinctive feature of them. we did see reference yeah. to that in what we were reading on the way here that uh, the spores the spore bodies only go about halfway down or a little farther than that yep. but they didn't compare that to the european one mm-hmm. so that's a good yep. yeah so is the european one fairly widespread could you find that around here so that's an interesting question okay. so i have one on my desk at work yeah <laughs> <laughs> well we did find honestly when we looked it up online most of the things that came up were nurseries yes selling 
probably yeah, variety. Probably they have the European variety. Right. Most of what's commercially available. Um, so one of my office mates at, at ESF in, in school was doing genetics work for it, and he was comparing it with commercially available varieties with the American Hearthstone fern. And the commercially available ones are almost always your, of European genetic okay. origin. Um, there's an interesting thing with this particular population with the genetics also. So they found this is the most genetically diverse population, um, and like significantly more so than any other heart sung fern population that was sampled throughout its range. Wow. Um, and it has a lot of genetics in common with the European heart sung fern. So there's a few different theories yeah. as to why that is and also why they're so much bigger than most of the other heart sung ferns we find. So when they did sampling, they did a transect through and they found that the ones on the outside, more outsides of the transects, so on either side of this main clump here, were more American looking in the genetics. And the ones toward the middle, as you move closer, got more and more European in their genetic makeup. So it's thought that at some point, someone may have actually planted European heart stung fern out here because oh. that was common to do back in like the early 1900s right. before we knew too much about, <laughs> you know, genetic swamping and hybrids and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's thought that it's possible. We don't know for sure, but it's possible mm -hmm. that these, some of these in here are hybrids, wow. which would explain their larger size also. Sure. Um, and they do tend on these ones, they do tend, not this one in particular that I'm looking at, but they do tend the sori to go a little further down the front in this population than they do in most of the other populations. Okay. Interesting. So there's, so there's kind of like, yeah, some air of mystery to this population. <laughs> that they might have a little European in them. They, yeah, they, yeah, we know, we know they've got a little European in them. Yeah. <laughs> but how it got there and what it really means, um, you know, that's up for debate still. Wow. So I wanted to say something about the morphology. So I was kind of worried that we read that at the base of the frond, at the base of this strap-like thing, there was mm -hmm. going to be a heart-shaped base to it. And I'm glad that it's not really all that heart-shaped. It actually looks <laughs> much more like one of those little plastic things that you close your loaf of bread with. Right? Do you oh, know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, 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 so I, I was just worried that there would be some confusion with, you know, like hearts, to, like the base is heart-like, but it's not. Uh, it's okay. more like it pinches mm -hmm. off uh, a loaf of bread that you're trying to keep fresh. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, but it is interesting, the, the base of it there. Yeah. yeah. Again, not typically uh, fern-like. Yeah, definitely. So there's a, another fern that we have in uh, decent amounts of here. It's fairly rare, though, throughout most of its range, is the walking fern. Okay. Um, so a splenium rhizophyllum. And those are really interesting. They're uh, a relative of heart's tongue fern, probably the closest one that we have here in the park. And they are much smaller, but they also have a base kind of like that. Mm. But what they do is they, they're much smaller, but they grow out the tips really, really, really long and plant them back in the soil. And then they sprout a new that's fern from walking. that. So that's how they call it, the walk, walking yeah. fern. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the closest relative and the best indicator species for heart's tongue fern um, that I know of. If you find walking fern around, you're more likely to find heart's tongue fern around. Okay. Or, and that's something that I actually used when I was looking for areas to transplant these, um, I guess getting into a project that I was working on for my master's um, was a reintroduction project. And we used, you know, the GIS models, uh, the habitat models and expert opinion and our knowledge of the area, but also just going around and finding in the park and places we wanted to put them where walking fern was growing was not a bad indicator of where they might also grow. Hmm. Yeah. Let's stand up. 
Now, what did you say the the um, species name for uh, walking fern was again? It's Asplenium rhizophyllum. The walking part has nothing to do with the rhizome. <laughs> no, but so what it actually means is is like planting leaf. Oh. Um, so so phylum being the leaf or phylum being the leaf yeah. and rhiza yeah. <laughs> rhizo meaning like planting like a rhizome and like for, a stem yeah. for listeners who don't know what is a rhizome so a rhizome is an underground stem right. that is typical of most ferns and also how a lot of ferns tend to spread okay. um like the, these um glade ferns that we have behind us have really extensive rhizome systems um so what you're actually seeing when you see a fern is the above ground leaves but they all will typically have an underground stem um, that would be more uh, analogous to what you think of like a tree trunk right. or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So that's their main source of where they store their, um, you know, starches and carbohydrates and sure. all that good stuff. And then they shoot up the leaves from under the ground. So you mentioned your your project, your reintroduction project you were right. doing. Did Have we talked much yet about the habitat requirements of Hartstown? Yeah. That, We've mentioned it a little bit. but Not much, no. Yeah. So... So when you guys were talking earlier about the slope and, and you know, how steep it is and everything, um, so there's a lot of great research done on this in the early 90s by um, a professor at ESF called Don Leopold. Um, he was on my committee as well. He wrote the book on trees in the Northeast. Say, another like, notable yeah. author. He's very yeah. well known, yeah. I had a lot of, uh, like, you know, conservation <laughs> all-stars on my team. It was you pretty intimidating. You were in the right place, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it was very helpful in the long run. Um, really intelligent folks, but he did a lot of research on the habitat requirements for heartstone fern um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And what we're actually looking at here is what we'd call a talus slope. So, and then above it would be a calcareous cliff. So what happens is over time, rocks will fall off of the cliff and build up at an angle here. Um, and then eventually organic matter leaves, everything will fill it in. So you get somewhat thin soils, but really nutrient rich soils and heart's tongue fern absolutely love calcium and magnesium, which is what is in this limestone. That is what these cliffs are made of. It's all dolomitic limestone. So very rich in calcium and magnesium. So we'd call it a calcifile, a plant that is absolutely required to have calcium in order to grow. And that's what we find it along the Niagara escarpment. And you kind of know where to look for it based on those characteristics. Um, and then the walking fern must have similar requirements? Um, I think that they can range out a little more than that. Oh, okay. So walking fern isn't always a good indicator sure. of it, but it's the best one that we have. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so other important things about the habitat are drainage. Heartstring fern are really susceptible to root rot. So that's why they grow on these slopes, we believe, and not in too much down in areas like this because it's too wet down there the water doesn't drain off yeah so so seeps through all the cracks in the rocks and kind of rolls off um so propagating heart's tongue fern american heart's tongue fern is probably one of the most difficult ferns to propagate that i've read in every book that i've read on it (laughs) um so it was a little daunting you can imagine when i came into that for my project knowing that this was going to be like a hard hard thing to do um, but yeah, root rot is one of the big issues that we have with that. So how'd you do? Um, we did okay. Yeah, <laughs> we did all right. Um, so it was funny, but one of my first things I had to do when I was a graduate student was invite a speaker, um, to come to the, the campus and do a seminar on plant reintroduction. And we got this guy, great guy from Oregon, uh, Tom K who's a plant reintroduction specialist. He runs the Institute of Applied Ecology 
out in Corvallis, Oregon. We got him to come out and he did a seminar and here I am a new grad student. You know, I just did this thing. I was like, yeah, I got this guy to come out. It was great. First thing he says in his presentation is he's like, the one thing that plants love to do or reintroduce plants love to do is die. (laughs) (laughs) And you can imagine me sitting there just like terror just came over me. I was like, oh, I'm getting into this like losing battle. Um, But no, we did pretty well. Um, and we, we found out a lot about it. I can maybe talk about that a little more sure. in a moment. Um, but to get back to the, the habitat, another significant thing about the habitat, the way these basins are shaped, they actually maintain a cooler micro, microclimate in terms of the air temperature and higher humidity than any of the adjacent forests around it. So you get these areas where, and you'll notice, they only grow almost like mid-slope. Right. They, yeah. they don't really range down too much into the bottom. Few. Yeah. They don't really jump over the top of that cliff too much onto the flatter areas. Um, they're so sensitive to climate. And, it, you know, that's one thing that we've never really been able to figure out. We have theories on why they're only at mid-slope and they don't go above or beyond. It definitely has something to do with the microclimate and probably the drainage. Right. Um, and possibly snowpack as well, um, which is an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, they're, they're just a really mysterious plant. Despite all the research from Don Leopold and all we know about them, um, there's still elements that we don't. And this is probably one of the more well-studied plants in the area, um, for an endangered or threatened species. Um, and we still just has this air of mystery about it. That we're, and this probably goes know. back to what you were saying before, how mm-hmm. even in historical times when there was more habitat available mm-hmm. since it has such specific requirements mm-hmm. it was probably never a ubiquitous species no probably it was probably more so though in the like way way back like in the glacial <laughs> age because yeah. we do there are two i forgot to mention there are two what i consider kind of relic populations in tennessee and alabama okay. and they exist down there in sinkholes like cave sinkholes we did see that right that yeah alabama in those yeah. southern areas it's right it's, just in those sinkholes right so my theory is that at one point they were more widespread and and common back you know ten thousand years ago as the glaciers receded and the climate changed they kind of got relegated to these areas like these sinkholes in tennessee and alabama and these plunge basins that we're in here right now um, with these steep slopes and they're almost always north facing slopes too because the south facing slope will get too much sun it'll dry out too quick right Um, So we know very specifically north to east facing slopes, 60 degree slope, plus or minus, like calcareous talus slope, uh, magnesium and calcium. Like we know all these things like to to do it, but we still don't quite understand why, like why in that particular spot. But why isn't that right over there too? Like, Like you look 50 feet to your right, there's none over there. It's like the same as over here. It's a, it's a really weird plant. So you have some of the pieces, but not all of them yet. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It always keeps you on your toes. Yeah. yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's always more to learn. <laughs> yeah. Now, are there any um, species that uh, reliably associate with it? Uh, maybe like tree species or... Calcium-loving right. species. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just trying to think what other, you know, what other connections there could be. So typically what you'd find in terms of the, the tree composition around them would be, I mean, not all that dissimilar from what we're seeing here. So we've got American basswood. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got yellow birch. Um, we usually have um, eastern hophorn beam growing. Um, sugar maple, obviously, is a big one. Um, generally, it would be like northeastern hardwood kind of forest type of species. Okay. 
Um, we do occasionally have a mixed in uh, eastern hemlock or so, but you'll notice around the base of the hemlock, you don't see really any heart's tongue ferns growing around right. the base of it. Yeah. There's a couple reasons for that, or a couple things that we believe about that anyways, is that one, it's probably contributes to um, raising, or I'm sorry, lowering the acidity of the soil around it. Um, and they like circumneutral soils, we you know, or the pH. Um, and also it blocks snow from coming down and laying a blanket over them over the winter. So Syracuse, as some of you may know, is one of the snowiest, city, well, <laughs> yeah. the snowiest city in the United States. Metro, 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 metropolitan, yeah, <laughs> yeah, metropolitan area, yeah. yeah. Um, so we get lots of snow, yeah. yeah. And and part of that is thought to be really important in protecting the heart's tongue fern from our freezing temperatures in the winter, which we also enjoy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are they evergreen? They are evergreen, yeah. So you'll see, um, so for instance, on this one that's here, you lift up the new fronds you'll see remnants of the old fronds somewhere around here okay yeah this yeah. one's pretty buried but some of them are more easy to see um like up in there so they'll look like this but more flattened in the spring and they'll shoot up the new fronds with the old fronds still there um so they're like semi evergreen you could say they they persist under the snow but then eventually over the course of the summer the next year they'll away the new set of leaves takes over right yeah right oh yeah so the hemlock with the snow they block some of the snow coming down so there's not an, as much cover from ice and freezing right. temperatures and so that probably damages the the ferns especially when they're very small when they're they're little sporlings we call them it's right. like the equivalent of a fern seedling is a sporling <laughs> um and i have actually marked one off that i found up there we can go say, take we have a look a, at that in a we minute. have a pretty small one right down there yeah so is that even is the one that you found even smaller than that oh much oh okay yeah, much so this would be considered an immature one because it doesn't it's not producing spores yet um it takes them about four to eight years to reach maturity wow. very slow growing plant that's one of the difficulties in propagating them too is after two or three years you've only got a plant that's like you know a couple inches <laughs> you know yeah. it's, they're not very big um and they can live we don't know exactly how long they can live that's a weird not to know how long they, they can live for but we estimate it's probably somewhere in the range of like 30 to 50 years which isn't unusual for for a lot of ferns have we have we mentioned yet how long the average frond is i don't think we have have we no i don't think so okay. no so you're probably looking at for for an average frond this one that we're looking at here in front of us is a little smaller i would say um than average for a mature one but you're talking probably somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 centimeters and the longest ones i found have been like 75 80 centimeters um sorry i do everything in metric because uh, <laughs> right. that's just how we have to do it so i don't know what's the equivalent divided by 2.54 and that's how many inches you got yeah yeah yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah 20 to 25 inches something like that yeah and this immature one yep that's uh just a couple feet away from the one we're looking at those fronds we would say let's do it in inches what you say two three inches long yeah yeah, yeah not more yeah. than three inches yeah, yeah you're probably looking at yeah two eight, eight nine centimeters two three inches something like that yeah. well, let's go look at the sporling yeah. Yeah, yeah let's go take a look at the sporling okay and watch your step i guess yeah yeah we're gonna go up diagonally here on the slope so and watch yeah watch the rocks some of the rocks look stable but they're not oh i was talking about trampling <laughs> and also trampling yeah any ferns they're very sparse through here though so you should be okay there's just one right here mm-hmm all right all right so as you can see working on these in this habitat is really difficult the rocks are yeah. pretty loose 
sometimes you know there's nowhere you can step without almost stepping on a heart's tongue fern in some of these spots right. so uh, we, we it's very careful surgical work that we do around here um, but so now I'm going to show you one of the sporlings so I guess a little background on fern biology um, so ferns reproduce by spores we've been talking about that but they don't just grow from the spore into the fern that you see they start by producing a gametophyte or a prothallus which is basically just a little green structure maybe about the size of your pinky now um, that's about a cell layer thick or two cell layers thick and on that structure they have the sperm and the egg and ferns require a film of water to reproduce so a raindrop a small puddle something like that a rock crevice in mm -hmm. this case will provide that that water and that's how the sperm swims to the egg is when it's coated in a film of water so what happens then is you get little ferns produced Whoa. like that Whoa. size <laughs> yeah so you can see this is growing right out of the rock that's like about it's literally a quarter inch yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and they're very very small yep so this would have been a new sporling produced this season Whoa. so this probably sprouted out from the gametophyte um from the egg um geez within the last month or two Whoa. yeah it's very tiny so in the lab, when we would be growing these for our reintroduction project, we'd start them off in little petri dishes, we'd sterilize soil in them, you sow the spores over it, you get the gametophyte growing. In the lab, it takes about 90 days before you get a sporling. Um, out here... You gotta be pretty it's, patient. It's up for... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, fern, gr fern growing is not as hard as some, a lot of people think. Maybe this fern is not the good one to start on. Um, <laughs> But, but it is a, a patient person's game, for yeah. sure. Um, you're not going to just put a seed in and have it sprout up to this big old plant in the course of a couple of months. Right. You're going to sow a spore. You're going to get a gametophyte in about three months. You're going to get a sporling in about six months. And it's going to be about this size, which is real <laughs> tiny. And then, as you saw, the one that we had down there that looked probably like four years old, it only had fronds that were about two, three inches long. So it's a very, very patient person's game. And yeah. these ones are hard to keep alive for a long time. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, very, uh, what's, what's the term? Patient work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But anyways, so we would grow them in Petri dishes, actually, uh, at ESF. And we would, when the gametophytes were mature, when we knew it had sperm and egg, we'd flood the dishes with water so that we knew the sperm was swimming around and hopefully crossbreeding with other gametophytes that were in the dish and we get a little bit of genetic diversity going on not selfing so not it's almost like self-pollinating if they were to do it on right. their own um and then we get these little guys growing so how long would you be growing them in a controlled environment before you transplant them that is an excellent question and that was actually like the main focus of my thesis um was how long what life stage do you have to grow them to before you can plant them out in the environment and get some kind of appreciable survival of them so we did everything from we did a pilot study where we just sowed spores out didn't get any growth from that um we when we went came to the main part of the study we partially germinated the spores so they produce a little filament called a protonema mm -hmm. um, it's about six seven cells long and we transplanted those in like these little rock crevices and things like that we transplanted gametophytes themselves so the little structure about the size of your pinky nail that has a sperm in the egg. We put them out when they were about mature and ready to reproduce. We transplanted sporlings, a little larger than that, but about six months, eight months old, some of them a year or so old. Um, 
And I should specify a sporling is a basically just a young fern that's less than an inch in length of the frond. Um, it's not really a life stage. It's just something that we created to differentiate it from something from the rest of them. Um, and then we had plants that were grown for about three to five years. So I inherited those. I didn't, you know, <laughs> I'm like long masters. Yeah. Those ones were, they started propagation and experimenting with all that before I started my masters. Um, and I inherited a lot of those plants. Good deal. Yeah. Yes, that was, that was nice. But I grew most of the, the, the younger ones myself, um, which was definitely easier than, well, I had to keep the other ones alive, which was tough, but, mm. <laughs> but, um, so we did that. And what we found was not only <laughs> the longer you grew them, the better you did, but the older ones we divided into two separate categories. So there were ones that we attempted to acclimatize to the outdoor environment, to their natural environment, using a cold room uh, in a greenhouse at, at ESF and you know just changing the light regime and all that stuff. And then we took some and we put them outside in pots and overwintered them outside. And so not only do you have to grow them for three to five years before you get appreciable survival, you have to acclimatize them outdoors. So the ones that you did in the room didn't do as well? No, not at all. So that the ones that were outdoors acclimatized, we saw a, seeing somewhere on average about a 30 to 40% survival rate, <laughs> which... So, <laughs> so I've, I've, I've given uh, presentations for U.S. Fish and Wildlife because they're a big part of our project as well, being federally listed. Um, and there was a, um, like an animal biologist in the room, and she's like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like 30, 30%? I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was like, so with animals, yeah, that would probably suck. Yeah. Um, I don't even know, though. If you think about, like, birds, like, you know, what's their survival rate? Yeah. Well, let's yeah. say past their first year. Right. Good luck, you know, <laughs> yeah. mammalogist or, or, you know, avian biologist. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, what, what you would consider a success is really wide-ranging, depending sure. on the species that you're working with. Yeah. So we're working with a species who that's extremely climatically sensitive has such really specific habitat requirements and is just really like we know a lot about it but there's still something we can't put our finger on with it so to get something around 30 to 40 percent survival even if it's just in that one category most of the other ones just all died mm -hmm. for the most part um, so now we know something about how to go about doing this properly um, and i should mention that this isn't the first time that people have tried this People have been trying to reintroduce heartstung ferns since the 1920s um, because there was a, an area, a population nearby that ended up being quarried, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah, so there's a huge quarry um, not too far from here, about two miles long, that apparently was just as beautiful, had Miramictic lakes, like everything like we have here, like mm. really awesome, awesome area. And apparently there were some of the biggest populations of heartstung ferns in the state over there that I've read. They ended up <laughs> transplanting some of those in here because they knew it was going to become a quarry. And uh, so actually professors at Syracuse University, Dr. Mildred Faust, who I should mention, um, was a female uh, botany professor and botanist at a time when most females weren't in it. Um, did a lot of work on the Hartstung Fern. We owe her a great debt. Um, she passed away in 1988 or so, but she did excellent work on the Hartstung Fern. Uh, was involved in a project where they transplanted them into Clark Reservation here in the 1930s and none of them survived uh, um, so adults don't do that well either they have to be a certain young age they have well i it it really just depends on the i think they may have just not put them in a, i read a report that said that they got washed away like there was a rain event 
So maybe okay. they just didn't get them under the rock crevices, right? And they got washed away. Yeah. And this and that. Um, but they're, as a result of the quarrying, uh, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden actually started propagating these. Um, and they, per perhaps against what we know now, but back then it wasn't really well known, they started sending them all over the country for people to plant them. Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they were, they, they were like, yeah, let's put these everywhere. Um, and so, you know, that would be not advisable now. What right, we know what we right, know about invasive right. species. Maybe they'd become invasive somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we, we wouldn't advise that now. But there was almost no data that was returned, and the data that was returned said that they died after the first winter. So we know the first winter is the important thing to get to. Yeah. With, with my survival, it was like straight down in terms of mortality or, or survival. It was just very low after that first winter, and then it kind of leveled off. So we hmm. saw not too much in losses after that first winter. You can winter. make it through that first winter, right? right? Yeah, That's yeah. the important thing. Um, but this has been attempted, the like propagation and reintroduction of heart stung fern, at least four times in the past, and without either with no successful results or with no data to back up any kind of claim. Yeah, so, tough. so your effort has been the best. Yeah. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Yeah. Not all my effort, though. I had a lot of help along the way. And a 30% uh, success yes. rate. Yes, you had a 30% success rate. But now we know um, what we didn't get any information from in the past is why it didn't work or why it did work. Um, so now we have that knowledge. We can take that and move on to the next phases of it. And, and we do plan on continuing propagation. There is actually on, ongoing propagation happening at SUNY ESF right now. And uh, that project will be transitioned over to parks sometime within the next year. And will so. you have a hand in that then? Yes. Oh, yes. great. So um, we mentioned Mary Clark Thompson earlier and her involvement with here and with Sonnenberg Gardens. So my former advisor for my master's, Danny Fernando, is currently running propagation at ESF. And he's going to transition that project over to, well, parks, but essentially me <laughs> and Bridget from your the, the previous episode that you did at Sonnenberg Gardens as part of the plant materials program for parks. We're going to be propagating them at the Sonnenberg Gardens greenhouses there for reintroduction probably three to five years from now right. after yeah. their outdoor acclimatization. Yeah, it's going to be a long project, um, but um, we've got the backing of Fish and Wildlife, New York Natural Heritage Program, SUNY ESF, nice. uh, you know. That's one thing about plant reintroduction that a lot of people aren't familiar with. You think you just grow a plant, you put it out there, and it doesn't matter. Like, that's just it. But it takes a long time to do it right, and you have to have buy-in, not only from the agencies that you're working with, but also from the public. You know, sometimes the public doesn't just want people growing plants and putting them out there and this and that. And, and you know, so it's really important that we get that feedback from people and that we have our partners on board and that everyone's everyone's with it. So we're not just out here rogue agents, you know, doing <laughs> right. whatever we want, like had been done in the past, yeah. you know, because we know that leads to problems with, is this a natural population? Right. Is this a transplanted population? So I keep my records up to date with, you know, all the appropriate people so that they know what I'm doing and I know what they're doing and we're all copacetic. And I think that's why, you know, Whitney, who, I don't know if she's directly your boss, but the one who put us in touch with you and who got in touch with us originally was one of her big reasons for doing it is to let the public know what's going on. Right. Because New York State Parks, being a park agency, they don't have a big marketing budget or, you know, a way to let lots of people know about the good work they're doing with plant propagation and reintroductions and all the other great stuff they're doing. But uh, we're happy to play our little small part in spreading the word. 
But I think this is a good point at which we can tell people if they want to support this work, if they want to find out more about this work, how can they do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So to find out more about it, um, recently I wrote a blog post for the New York State Parks blog that gives a little bit of history of the discovery of the fern in New York State and kind of what Parks is currently doing um, with the fern, etc. So you can find information on that there. Um, soon it will be at Sonnenberg Gardens being propagated, so you could go there probably in a year or two um, and visit actually visit them and see them there, which, so this is... which is probably the only time you'll be able to see them because not too many people... Well, we legally can't disclose the locations of these because they're, <laughs> they're federally protected, so not right. too many people get to see them. Um, so that'll be your chance to, to see them uh, probably within a couple years from now. So, so this is fall. So write 2000, it down. Yeah. yeah. This is fall 2018, folks. Yeah. So in fall 2020? Yeah, you might see some ferns growing there. We'll probably get it up and running within the next year, and so uh, we'll do that. But we're also planning right here at Clark Reservation in our nature center, which is a great resource that we have uh, by our parking lot here. Um, we're planting a terrarium with heart's tongue fern where you'll be able to see all the different life stages. So you'll be able to see the little gametophytes. You'll be able wow. to see the little sporlings cool. and some of the older plants. That'll obviously take a little while too because they're <laughs> so slow growing, yeah. um, but we're getting a nice Victorian style um, wardian case or terrarium. And we're gonna have some nice signage and interpretive information. Um, in order to get involved, like physically involved, um, you can always follow a few rules at parks so the best stewards of our parks, the best way to be involved is just to follow the rules, stay on the trail, don't throw garbage, things like that is excellent. And if you feel like you want to do more than just be a good visitor to the park, you can always contact parks, um, specifically through the FORCES program. Um, so that's Friends of Recreation, Conservation, and Environmental Stewardship, and offer to volunteer. We do a lot of invasive species management, so we come out with trowels and we're kind of surgical out here, you know, because it's really tough to work in. Uh, we dig out, you know, uh, the invasive species. Um, we do education programs, um, all that stuff. I, I Twice a year or so, I do a fern hike. So if you want to come along on that, I probably won't do another one this year, but maybe next year, keep your eye out for it. Um, at Clark Reservation State Park. So the forces program that you mentioned, Mike, that's specific to New York State, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a, actually a New York State Parks-specific program. Yeah, so any of our listeners outside New York State... Obviously, you can contact your state parks, get involved. They have similar programs, similar volunteer opportunities. It's always good to get involved in your local state parks if you want to feel a connection to your local environment. Yeah. All right. So why don't we move? Yeah. So we'll, uh, we can move down to a, a place with a little more secure footing? Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So, Mike, I think a good place to wrap up would be to say, you know, if a person asks, why bother with this plant? Its range is so restricted. Uh, most people are not ever going to run into this plant. How would you answer someone who says, why bother? Why bother put all this work into it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something that when you're so close to a topic like this, sometimes you forget that not everyone is as passionate or as, knows as much about it as you do. Um, so the why bother question is a really good one. Um, my best response to that in terms of, of this particular species, the heart's tongue fern, is that it exists in these areas that are so rare and significant. The habitats here, you don't find these everywhere. Um, and there's valuable natural resources that exist within the habitats as well, particularly limestone. So one of the reasons why bother 
is because if we didn't do this, if we didn't protect these plants or these areas, then basically you might end up with just a bunch of big pits in the ground that are kind of ugly. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's great brick and mortar. I'm not against that stuff. Um, but to do it in a way that doesn't affect um, these rare and significant communities that once they're gone, they're gone forever. I've done the habitat research. I've looked in the area. There's not many places that you can, you can't just move these. I don't want to get the impression that because we can grow them and transplant them that it's easy to do. It's really not. And there's not a lot of places for them to go. So it's really important for us to protect these simply because it's the only bits of them that are left. Um, you know, we've quarried up a lot of them. We've moved into areas and this and that. So we kind of have, as human beings, a responsibility to now start taking care of these areas that, you know, otherwise might just end up a big pit in the ground. Yeah. yeah. And we did, in our limited research that we did, the literature we looked at said that populations, even though they're very limited, they are relatively stable. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Although the caveat to that is that some of the populations, particularly the ones that are on private lands um, in New York State, um, tend to have a lot of invasive species. Right. Um, so pale swallower in particular is one that most people are familiar with. That's a really nasty, aggressive, invasive vining plant. And so the ones like this that we're at now, this is definitely stable. This is a, a big, healthy population. But some of the populations in New York State are as few as eight 10, 15 plants. Wow. And if you get swallowwort and other things coming in there, like there's no management of the land because they're on private land or wherever, um, then I would argue that we're probably more at risk of losing some of these populations now than we ever have been um, because of that issue. And that's something that is being addressed with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the uh, New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. They actually have private landowner like land management programs for people that have rare threatened endangered species on their property um, and that gives them advice and guidance on how to manage their properties Great. as well and so they're working on things like that right now okay. yeah. all right well mike we want to say thank you again for uh sharing your time your knowledge with us in the audience we appreciate it and we hope that you'll come back on sometime yeah you're welcome guys thanks for coming out and checking out our little corner of the world here yeah thank you our pleasure yeah. All right, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. And we want to give a big thank you to Mike for giving up his time, his expertise. Um, you can just tell this man's a natural teacher. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really great. It was great. We also want to thank our contact at New York State Parks, Whitney Carlton, for putting us in touch with Mike and all the other uh, great people that she works with. And uh, we definitely hope she'll be putting us in touch with more people in the future. Yeah, looking forward to what they're doing, you know, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Sarah, Rachel Liffham, the drunk phytologist. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, and welcome <laughs> back, Mountain Misery Farms. Hey, welcome back. Yeah. I'm glad they came back. <laughs> <laughs> so we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we like to give a special thanks to our top patrons. Rob, we named the dog Indy, Orange Julian, and especially Ken, Diane, Alyssa, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, and Susan. Thank you, folks. Yeah, we also need to thank our recent PayPal donors. So thank you very much, Jerry, Cheryl, and Amanda. Thank you guys so much. Those were incredibly generous donations. Yes, so thank, thank you, you folks. very much. It was a very wonderful surprise. Yeah. We also want to thank our new five-star reviewer on iTunes. So thank you, Devil Chaser. And I also want to thank our reviewers on Stitcher 
from the last year since we always seem to forget them. So <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> so thank you, MK710, Julie DD, and Mark Nenadov. Yeah, so keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Now, I want to say life's been super busy, and I <laughs> forgot to get in touch with Always Wondering Art um, it, for, for our normal beautiful thumbnail. Oh, okay. uh, but as always, their website and Etsy page will be in the episode notes. Yes. So you guys get a free one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, and as we said before, please go check out gumleafusa.com, and we have links in the episode notes and on our website. And remember to check out the great work that Mike and New York State Parks are doing at Clark Reservation State Park. Yeah, it's a great place to go and visit. Yeah, so if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and follow us on Facebook, and visit our website at the fieldguidespodcast.com and if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides but if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now there are other ways you can help out you can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on itunes or stitcher it really helps us get the word out to more people so thanks for listening and we'll see you next month see you next month folks